We're so thankful to be together here this day, first of the week, to honor the God of heaven and remember his son. Uh, as we've mentioned, we have visitors this morning. We're very happy that you can be among us to uh, engage in this worship. It's all about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in coming and living and dying and then rising from the dead uh, to make it all so effective. And we'll be touching on uh, all of that a little bit today. The fact that Jesus is our atonement, our atonement. He is the one who has paid the price for our sins. And we memorialized that just moments ago as we took of the Lord's Supper. Those of us who are involved in our Bible classes here, and that's most all of us <laughs> at Eastside, we spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about Old Testament events, God giving His law to Israel at Sinai, a law that was for Israel, but it was a law that uh, had a lot of stipulations in it and uh, specific ways of approaching God, specific ways of uh, getting forgiveness for sins. And particularly, we've talked about, uh, in one class period especially, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. We'll be talking about that some more in just a minute. But it was the day on which uh, the high priest went into the presence of God with uh, blood so that the sins of himself and the people could be uh, put away on that day. There are special things that happened on that Day of Atonement. And again, we've thought a lot about that in recent weeks. Tom Holly was with us uh, a couple of months, a few months back, and spoke to our young people, especially about the importance of the atonement from the book of Leviticus and what it is that that means. There's an obvious connection in Scripture between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. There's a less obvious connection between the Day of Atonement and the Lord's Supper, and I'd like, like to make that connection, though, in our lesson this morning. The Day of Atonement is the day the sacrifices were made for the sins of the people. And what we do in taking the Lord's Supper is we remember when our sacrifice was made for our sins. So there's a direct connection between the two, and we'll establish that as we go along this morning. Um, so the lesson, I'll just be frank with you, calls upon us to look at pieces of knowledge from about three different places in Scripture and put them together to really get what it is that I want us to see from God's Word today. So stay with me. We'll be talking about things we've recently studied, we've recently studied, things that we haven't recently studied, and uh, trying to put all that together as then we look at the end of the lesson in the Lord's Supper. The Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16, was, as I've already said, it was a holy day. It was to be... Uh, performed in a holy place. The priest was to wear holy garments. Holiness surrounded it. There were two goats that were chosen. Le uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. And let's just go there and read the passage. Talking about the duties of the high priest. He shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell 
and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So you have two goats, among other things, that are chosen in this process of making atonement. One goat was offered as a sacrifice and the other goat was used as a scapegoat. The first goat was sacrificed according to the instructions in Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16. The second goat was sent into the wilderness bearing the sins of the people. So you have two metaphors, if you will, here. The sacrifice of, 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 of blood, sacrifice of blood, of life, is required for the expiation of sin. But then you also have this scapegoat, another concept where the sins, uh, if you will, symbolically are placed on the head of the goat, and then he's sent out into the wilderness as if the sins are taken away from the camp, from the congregation. We understand uh, that the Israelites uh, were to participate in all of this in the holiest of ways. This was a day for them of, of mourning. It was a day of uh, severe self-contemplation, if you will. The people were to afflict their souls. If you go over to Leviticus chapter 23, you can read, that on the tenth day of the seventh month, which is the day of atonement, it shall be a holy convocation. Again, holiness is a, a, a big emphasis. Holiness, the separation and the purity of the people. It's a different time. It's not like you're just, you know, uh, doing a menial thing or a common everyday thing. This is a special thing. This is a thing where you come before God in in purity and separate with a special purpose. It's a holy convocation. A con convocation is just an assembly or a meeting. You shall, the text says there, afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no, no work on that same day. It is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from the people. If you're not serious about this atonement, if you're not serious about this day of atonement, you'll be cut off from the people. You don't belong in the congregation of God's people if you won't participate in this holy atonement. When we come to the New Testament, we have questions, you know, about all this. Under the old law, where did the sins go exactly? And how, did, how is it that they were taken away? The blood of bulls and goats could not remove them. The New Testament clearly says that. Let's go over to the book of Hebrews now. The law, in verse 1, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things. So this law that we just read about was uh, a shadow, a representation, a metaphor, if you will, a symbol of something that we participate in today. The law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. So every year there was this day of atonement, but nobody was ever made perfect by that. Not completely at least. That's what perfection means, right? For then would they have not ceased to be offered. If, if a sacrifice like that worked, you wouldn't have to keep on offering it every year if it was completing the purpose. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. 
But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year that the problem of sin was really kind of still there. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats, the blood we just read about in Leviticus, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So the question, where did the sins go? The scapegoat could not carry them. We don't do that today, right? But what the scapegoat did and what the other goat, the sacrificial goat did, symbolized what we do today. That's the point of the Hebrew writer. Those were symbols of what we have today. The Day of Atonement was symbolic. We can look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 7. The second part, that is, of the tabernacle. The high priest went alone once a year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regarding to his conscience. These people living under the Old Testament still lived with the consciousness of sin. So where did the sins go? God did tell them that sins were forgiven back in the Old Testament when they did these things. Where did the sins go? The sins went on Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 says, For this reason about Jesus, He is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death, listen to this, for the redemption of their transgressions under the first covenant. Jesus on the cross paid the price for those sins that God had already forgiven under the first covenant. He paid the price. He bought that at the cross. For the redemption of the sins trans, uh, committed under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Sins went on Jesus. The Old Testament sacrificial system was a bit like a layaway plan. Some of you here have no idea what a layaway plan is. But for those who are a little older, we can remember the days, you know, we'd go to Kmart or Walmart, used to have a layaway. And you'd see something that you wanted, maybe you're buying it for a present for somebody in the future. You can't afford it today. And not everybody and their brother had all these credit cards that we all have today either. So I want this and I want to make sure I can get it for my wife's birthday or whatever it is, but I can't afford it today. So I, I, I pick it up, I take it back to the back of the store, and I say, I want to put this on layaway. I, I, I want to buy this, but at a later date. And they say, oh, oh okay, uh, you need to put a little money down on that. So I put three pennies down, you know, it's all I've got. And you're going to hold this for me until the price can be made. But the thing that I'm buying is forgiveness. Say it's something in, in my, in my uh, story, something that's worth a billion dollars. I'm putting something worth a billion dollars on a layaway. Sandy, you're waiting for that, right? A billion dollars. And I'm putting three pennies down on it. Two goats and a bull. I'm never going to be able to pay that. Right? Never. And then the store owner comes on the day of Sandy's birthday and writes a check for a billion dollars. 
That's what Jesus did. He paid it. He paid the debt for all of it. He paid the price. For this reason, for this reason, he died. Hebrews 9.15 says, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. The New Testament says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, that him who knew no sin, he made to be sin. And some, in translating that, looking at that, be a sin sacrifice, if you will, is the idea. Him who, 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 he who knew no sin, he made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Where do the sins go? Where do your sins go? Where do mine? What price is paid for them? What can I give God? What can I do for God? For my sins? I want to tell you the story of a woman by the name of Alila. Several years ago, Alila, a young mother, stood on the shore of the great river, holding her infant son close to her heart. Tears welled up in her eyes as she began to walk into the river. And she got waist deep and then she got chest deep. And she stood there for a long, long time, silently, with the water lapping at the baby's feet. And then all of a sudden, in one quick movement, she threw her six-month-old child into the water. And he drowned. M.V. Varghese, who was preaching to people along the Ganges River in India about Jesus Christ, came upon her just shortly after, kneeling on the shore of the river, beating her breast, crying hysterically. Mr. Varghese kneeled down beside her and with compassion asked her what was wrong. And she said, the problems in my home are too many and my sins are so heavy on my heart. So I offered the best I have to the goddess Ganges, my firstborn son. You say, well, that's crazy. Is it? What price? What price for your sins? Micah asked the same question long ago. Micah chapter 6 and verse 7. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here's the seriousness of sin. Here's the price of your sin and mine. But God answers Micah's question. And God answers the question of the lady at the river Ganges. And he says to us, no, you don't have to give your child because I gave mine. The perfect Son of God. Jesus is the Lamb the Lamb 
slain from the foundation of the world, Revelation 13 and verse 8 says. In God's plan and in his mind all along that he would do that for you and me. There's our atonement. Nothing we can give. Only what God could give. He paid the billion dollars. He gave his son. Your day of atonement occurred at the cross. Jesus' sacrifice provides that atonement. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. There's atonement. Peter echoes the same thought in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 when he says about Christ that He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Our atonement. He bore our sins on the tree. He became the atonement as we've already read in Hebrews 9 and verse 15 by means of death. Jesus is our propitiation and the very basis of our forgiveness. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John says, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. See, sin is horrible. And John is encouraging the people to whom he's writing and us not to sin. He says, I'm writing these things so you don't sin. But, but God, right? But if any man sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation is an atonement. The atoning sacrifice, what pays the price, what appeases the justice and the wrath of God, is Jesus Christ. The propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4 and verse 10, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The powerful love of Almighty God. We remember that. We remember that in the Lord's Supper. We remember that in the communion. The the communion commemorates atonement. What Jesus did for us. And so when we took the, the... the elements this morning, the bread and the fruit of the vine, what was on your mind? Did you think about the cross? Did you think about the body that Jesus gave there? The blood that was shed for your iniquities? There was one who was willing to die in my stead that a soul so unworthy might live. And the road to the cross, He was willing to tread all the sins of my life to forgive. I think that every week. We thought about atonement. I want to go back to Malachi for a minute and you'll see where this is going just briefly. Go with me to the book of Malachi. In the days of, of Malachi, the children of Israel were suffering spiritually and physically because they despised the Lord's table. They weren't 
wholly and wholeheartedly participating in the sacrifices. Israel had lowered the goal of worship, if you will. We just got done with the March Madness season, you know, so everybody was all hyped up about that. We had a team in this state that was supposed to do pretty good. That fell flat on their faces, by the way. But be that as it may, if, if, you, if you lower the goal when you're playing basketball, it's pretty easy to dunk a basketball, right? You get it low enough, we could even have two-year-olds dunking the basketball. Israel had lowered the goal. They'd lowered the goal of worship. The standard that God had set up here in holiness, they put down here. And they were just dunking away. But it wasn't scoring any points with God. See what happens. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am then your father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? What are we doing, God, that so upsets you? You offer defiled food on my altar, but you say, in what way have we offered defiled food? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Notice that. The table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there, even among you, who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, they, they are... They're dunking on a really low goal. And God says, I'm not accepting any of it. You're scoring no points with me. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations. So says the Lord of hosts. I believe verse 11 is a prophecy of what it's supposed to be like today. For God's name is great among the nations, the Gentiles, and He is praised and honored as He ought to be by His people all over the world. But verse 12, but you profane it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, what a weariness. You sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Let me ask you, when we come to partake of the Lord's Supper, what are you bringing to it? Are you bringing yourself in fullness, in consecration, in purity, and in holiness? Are you bringing your all to the commemoration of the atonement? Or something less than your all? God has made the perfect sacrifice. But when we commemorate it, what are we bringing? 
to the table of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, let's go over there. The connection between 1 Corinthians, I'll just, I'll just uh, give you the spoiler here. Spoiler alert. The, first, the connection between Malachi and 1 Corinthians is this. They're both talking about the table of the Lord. They're both talking about the table of the Lord. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. There is uh, a fellowship, obviously, that occurs when we take this. We, it was our, Brad mentioned it this morning. We need to be doing this with regularity, like the saints in the New Testament did. On the first day of the week, they came together to break bread, like those in Acts 2. They continued steadfastly, steadfastly as Brad noted, in the breaking of bread. It wasn't a thing, well, we can, we're going to come once a year to do this because, you know, whatever, whatever. That's not it. What do we bring to it? What is our commitment to it? What's Paul say to the Corinthians? There's a fellowship in this. There's a connection in this where we're all doing it together. For we, though many, are one bread and one body. We all partake of the one bread. Then he says, observe Israel after the flesh are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar. Now I'll just, I'll just clarify this and just in case somebody's thinking, well, you know, Steve, on the Day of Atonement, they didn't actually eat those sacrifices. I know. <laughs> the Day of Atonement and the Passover are blended in the Lord's Supper. The Passover was eaten. But, here Israel ate sacrifices that they made to the Lord. And Paul then asked, what am I saying? That an idol is anything or whatever is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice to idols, they sacrifice to demons. Not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of, read it, you cannot partake of the Lord's table. And the table of demons. What's the Lord's table? It's the Lord's Supper. It's the communion. That's the exact phrase that is used in Malachi for what those people were despising by not bringing their best to it. And all of that then becomes really, really instructive to me when now I turn over to 1 Corinthians 11 and see what the problem is in Corinth. What the problem that Paul is really warming up to. It's not just that some of them were so worldly that they would go out and fellowship paganism through the week and then come and take the Lord's Supper on, on Sunday. They were doing that, apparently, some of them in 1 Corinthians 10. But that's not even the large problem that, that Paul is dealing with. It has to do with those who are coming regularly to take the Lord's Supper, but doing it improperly. How is the table of the Lord despised? And what problems result? Look at the familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 11 now. And we just look at this with new eyes now. 
Paul says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's the atonement. Remember that. In the same manner, he, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. Yes, taking the Lord's Supper is a proclamation of His living today and coming again, which implies the resurrection. So all of that is part and parcel of what the Lord's Supper is. But then notice, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Indeed, the Lord's table is despised when we take it in an unworthy manner. It affects our spirituality and it reflects our spirituality. We fail to discern the Lord's body. That's what's mentioned here. And as Doug mentioned, I'm going to say something about discernment. Discernment is the ability to make a distinction between things. What's holy and what's common. What's regular, ordinary stuff and what's special where I need to elevate myself. Give my very best and my fullest to it. We need to be able to discern what's common and what's holy. We're not just eating bread and drinking juice, right? That's not what we're just doing. There's meaningfulness in what we're doing. There's a sacrifice that was made that we're participating in and remembering and shedding tears over and smiling about at the same time. The bittersweet cross that we remember in this memorial. And when we fail to discern that, what the body really is, and that we now spiritually are a part of the body even, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. There's a lack of holiness and we profane the table like Israel in Malachi's day, this will bring God's judgment. God told Malachi, or told the Israelites through Malachi, in Malachi chapter 2, He says, Come now, you priests. This is verse 1. This commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not sow, take it to heart to give glory to My name, says the Lord of hosts. I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. 
What's Paul saying the Corinthians aren't doing? First Corinthians. You're not discerning the Lord's body. You're not taking it to heart. See the parallels? And the parallels go further. God tells those in Malachi's day, I'm not going to bless you. I'm going to curse your blessings. You're going to have problems because you're not holy. You're not giving me your best. You don't understand the importance of what we're doing here. What does Paul say to the Corinthians? We become guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Is, is, if we take it in unworthy manners, is God going to take that lightly? Is He going to take this profanity lightly? And that's what it is, taking something holy, making it like it's just an everyday thing. He is not. And Paul's clear about that. He says we become spiritually sick and dead and lifeless. Because we're not putting ourselves into appreciating our atonement. He says, many are weak and sick and many sleep. And I don't think he's talking about sleep as in, you know, your six or eight hours that you get at night. I think he's talking about sleeping in spiritual death. Many commentators believe that the sickness and death that's referred to here in 1 Corinthians is physical. I don't think it is. I don't think it can be. I understand that God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead, but that was not the common way of dealing with profanity among His people in the New Testament age. Rather, He showed almost always long-suffering and patience, bringing people to repentance. The, the problem of the Corinthians was spiritual sickness. And the, the concepts are used like that really throughout the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, when we were still without strength, that's the same word. Weak or sick. When we were still without strength, in due season, Christ died for us. We were spiritually sick. We were spiritually weak. We were spiritually powerless. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9.22, To the weak I became as weak. I put myself in their shoes. He's saying. What? People who are physically sick? No, people who are spiritually sick. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 14, We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak. Again, same word. Spiritually sick. And then you have those that are dead who have died spiritually because they've lost their connection with the atonement. Paul says, many among you sleep. He doesn't mean that a bunch of them are dead physically. He means they're dead spiritually. Many are dead spiritually because they have failed to take the Lord's Supper to heart. It wasn't the big part of their lives that it needed to be. Jesus commends, condemns the church in Sardis in Revelation 3 and verse 1. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. And Paul tells the Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 1, that they and all of us were once dead in our trespasses and sins. And so the idea of death in those passages is a living death, a zombie life where we're going through the motions. But it's not real. And it's not life. The Corinthians, the Corinthians were in horrible shape. 
because they were not in true communion with the Lord's holy table and the atonement that it represented. In the Lord's Supper, we are called to communion with our atonement. We are to come as God's holy people, washed in the blood of the Lamb, not because we're so great, not because we've lived perfect lives, but because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I I know, I know. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I'm I'm not worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Nobody's worthy to take the Lord's Supper because nobody was worthy for Jesus to die for you. We're not asked to live a perfect life to take the Lord's Supper. We're asked to have our sins washed in the blood of the Lamb. We come as God's holy people intent on participating in this memorial with the very best of ourselves. We're not going to bring anything less. We're not going to lower the goal. We're not going to make it easier. We're going to give the best of ourselves. Focused in reverence on the holy nature of the Lord's table in which we all share. Here is then what the Lord is calling you today. Calling you to today. He's calling you to receive the atonement. To be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Ananias told Saul of Tarsus in Acts 22 and verse 16, Arise and wash away your sins. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Here's where we contact the atonement. Here's where we come into contact. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into His death? There's where it is. We were buried with Him in the likeness of death as like Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so we also might walk in newness of life. Here is what God is offering you today. The atonement through His Son. Won't you take it? Please come while we stand and sing.